You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome to episode 98 of the Pimp Cron Brutality Podcast. I'm just kidding. It's the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. I just thought that maybe some of you might think that after two brutality-centric episodes in the last two weeks. So I apologize for those of you I've ostracized, those of you I've hurt by covering mostly brutality for two weeks. But we're back to our normal schedule, and this is the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast, where, believe it or not, we discuss Warhammer on this sexy, sexy podcast. So, what are we discussing tonight? Well, this is one segment you might find particularly interesting, is can you improve your dice rolling in Warhammer? And there's some studies I had to research and look up for this, and the results may surprise you, or they may not. There's no way to tell what you might assume about this, but you need to listen to that segment to listen and hear if there are any styles or techniques or information that you need to learn to improve your dice rolling, because we could all use some help in that uh, uh, category. There you go. That's the word, category. What else are we talking about? We are talking about, want that or want that not, the AMBOT model, which I know is not a new model per se. It came out, I think, within the last year. But I actually bought one, and I have some things to say about it that kind of surprised me when I got it compared to what I thought it was going to be like before purchasing it. So... You will have to tune into that. We also have a letter from Pick, and he has some baby blues after having a brand new baby, and he loves it, but he also misses his hobby that he's not getting to see very much. So we discuss that, and I have a little bit, just a little bit of knowledge about the hobby and having babies. So some would say having babies was a hobby for a couple years, but I am digressing. So so what have I been up to this week? Well, I've continued to assemble and work on my new Chaos Marine army, which I'm very excited about. I'm going for a rust theme, like all of their armor is rusty, and I'm enjoying it, but I'm having a hard time picking the second color. I think I want it to be blue, but it is kind of hard to find places to include blue with this rust theme. So... I am struggling at the moment. I painted two Mauler Fiends, and I love them, but they're mostly just variations of orange and silver, and I need to spice it up somehow. So I'm I'm trying to work that through. Um, I am also in the process of kitbashing a new war boss on Deathkiller Wartrike, which is pretty cool. And my new uh, leader is going to be a Grot, and his very short backstory is that he used to be a big mech's lackey and every time he'd get blown up by an experiment or whatever the um the big mech would make him cybernetic until eventually he just has a head left he's just a grot with a head and the big mech decided hey you know i'm gonna make this armored suit and see if it works so he shoved the grot's head in there hooked him up and then the grot killed him and went on a rampage and now he is going to be my proxy uh, war boss on Death Killer Wartrike. It's going to be on the same size base, and I'm going to make it just as tall. And uh, he is in the Ambot body. I bought the Ambot model. So that is what I'm up to. It's pretty funny, though, to see a big old Ambot, and there's a little grot face coming out of it. It's, it's I think it's pretty cute. 
Um, that is about it. I played just James and uh, with my f- buddy Beastman this week, and I can't even think of what we played. Oh, we played Gene Steeler Cult versus Admech. And it was one of those old classic scenarios where we were winning the entire game until there was almost nothing left of us on the field. And then we usually do one point at the end of each player turn and then two points at the, the end of the game for per objective for whoever holds them. Well, of course, he had more people than us at the end of the game. So even though we were leading by, I'm, I forgot the numbers now, we were leading by like four points or something like that. At the end of it, he had grabbed all four objectives, giving him like eight points at the very end. And then, of course, he alley-ooped over us in points. So it was a, it was a very fun game. Um, but, uh, we just, we just couldn't hold on long enough, which is kind of like the story of our life, right? As Gene Steeler cult players, they just, uh, they're not durable, but I enjoy them and love them just as much. And, uh, the, I finally got my rock grinder into combat and boy, I love that Goliath rock grinder as a, as a sweet model. Um, I think I own a second one, honestly, I need to assemble and, and, uh, put that together. That's pretty much all I've been up to this week, um, besides work and whatnot. So let's get on with the show. Let's get going. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Now is the time of the show where we read a letter from somebody. This is via Facebook.com slash Pimpcron, and it's our buddy Pick. He wrote Pick. I don't know if that's really his name or... uh, It's an alias, but Pick is an interesting name, certainly. He writes the following message to me. Hey there, I am a new dad and kind of struggling with the hobby at the moment. When I'm not at work, I'm giving my wife some much-needed time off from the baby, and I'm finding it very hard to find any time to hobby, not to mention play Warhammer anymore. This game is my main way to chill, and it has been really depressing me. I'm not trying to say that I am not stoked to be a dad, it's awesome, but I know you have at least three kids and wanted to ask you how you handled it. It seems that any time that I break out models, my wife stink eyes me. I'm not trying to paint her as a villain, she is going through a lot too. Thanks for a good show to listen to going to work. Pick. So thanks for writing in Pick, I appreciate it. And, uh, so there, yes. Okay. First off, I do have, I have four children and, um, there have been definite rough times in the hobby trying to keep up with everything. So if you really want my honest opinion, uh, (laughs) having babies sucks. (laughs) I mean, it's great and you love them to death and all that, but it really is a trying time. And this is why a lot of marriages or relationships break up in the baby phase or whatever. It's, it's very, very trying time. Babies are very expensive. Babies consume a lot of different um, products, you know, like diapers and, and wet ones and things like that, if not other food like formula. And they take up so much of your time. So it sounds like your wife is maybe staying at home and taking care of the kid. You know, it's very easily... Uh, it's very easy to kind of resent her because it's, you say that you're going to work every day and then you come home and she, you know, has been having the baby all day, which of course you know how that can be. And it's very easy for her to go, oh my gosh, just take this thing for a little while. I need some me time or I need to take a nap or whatever. And it's very easy for you to go, oh, well, I just got home from working all day. You've been home all day. 
But we both honestly know that taking care of a baby sucks. And I'm not trying to deter anybody from having children. Having children is awesome. But the baby phase, honestly, now that I have been through it four times, the baby phase is not something I want to go back to. <laughs> so it's so much easier when they can go feed themselves and potty and all that by themselves. And the, another thing that you have to try to squeeze in is some self-care time. And not to mention some relationship time with you and your wife, because this is a really, really easy time for the husband to feel pushed out because the wife is constantly all about the baby. She goes into mother mode and a lot of men kind of feel left to the wayside because originally it was just you and her. So this, you know, this is a big paradigm shift, but you should not fret too badly pick it does get better as time goes on. It is a rough couple months. It is a rough year, roughly. But after that, things do get a lot easier. And if you can help her get a breather from the kid, um, you will have more time to hobby. One good trick is to hobby with the child. If the baby is old enough, I don't know how old the baby is, if the baby's old enough to actually control its neck and you can hold it while it's sleeping, then you can paint models while it's sleeping. Um, I wouldn't use <laughs> wouldn't use an exacto knife over a baby's skull, but you you get what I'm saying. Maybe no assembly. Um, you also don't want to drip super glue on it. But painting is pretty much okay. And as the baby gets older, it can actually sit in your lap like mine did. And uh, many of my kids like to sit in my lap and watch me paint models. Now, that's when you're talking closer to a year or so, when the baby can actually sit up. But um, it's kind of nice. You know, you, you sit in a comfy chair, you snuggle with the baby, and you paint some models, and you're getting some hobby work done. Or maybe sit and read a codex, if that's your jam. Something to just kind of keep your mind off it. Or you know what? I know a really, really sexy podcast you can listen to. But you already said you listened to that at work. So, uh, anyway. So, just, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Children actually get better and better as they get older. Um, these times will not last forever. So, try to enjoy them. And, you know, just because you may not be able to participate in the hobby for a certain amount of time, whether it be an illness or a new child or job change or your busy season or whatever, it's not going to last forever. Nothing does. So enjoy the time with your baby and try to, if you can, if you can afford it, have some alone time with your wife where you can just chill and decompress and hang out, maybe during a baby nap or something like that. And we kind of tend to stumble through life and we don't plan things as much as we should. And that usually ends up to bad communication and that ends up with no self-care time, you know, no exercise or no eating right or no social time or hobby, whatever, whatever you need to keep running as a human being. We oftentimes don't schedule our time very well. So another thing you can do is every night try to take, you know, a half hour while the baby's asleep and sit on the couch with your wife don't turn on Netflix, don't turn on the TV, don't look at YouTube, literally look at each other and a conversation should start if you have a pretty good relationship and you will talk to each other and be supportive and things like that. In addition to that, maybe, just maybe, I don't know what your work schedule is like, but you could also spend some time just hobbying by yourself when she takes a nap or something like that. But like I said, don't despair. Everybody goes through these times where you are more or less involved in the hobby. And this definitely, definitely does get better. 
So I appreciate you writing in and asking my advice. And yes, I am an old hat at having children because we have four offspring. But luckily I'm out of the baby phase. Uh, thank God for that. So anyway, thanks for writing in, Pick, and we will talk to you later. Thanks for listening. Want that or want that not? On this edition of Want That or Want That Not, uh, I think we already covered the Ambots at some point. I really can't remember, and I am far too lazy to look back. But I just recently got some Ambots for myself because I was doing a special kit bash for a uh, war boss on Def Killer War Trike or whatever it's called. And I looked at these Ambots and I said, you know what? I have to have a box of those Ambots for myself. So I ordered them, and I was shocked at the price. I'm like, oh my gosh, $42 for these Ambots? These are a real steal. Well, I, I have to say, the Ambots look great. I love the models. They've got, um, if you're not familiar, Ambots are essentially robots in Necromunda that were meant for mining, I think it is, but then they can be reprogrammed to be like killer machines or something like that. It's essentially the um, robot version of an Ambul, from Rogue Trader era, whatever. So the Ambot is a really cool model. It's this big armored suit of robotness, and it's got kind of like a bug face, just like the Ambol does. And it's got these big, like, power claw-looking things and saw blades and whatever. It's it's a cool-looking, very cool-looking model, but I just recently got mine and assembled my first one. And one thing that I don't think is made very clear on the box, or maybe I was just negligent in looking at the cover art first, is that these things are very, very small. Very, very small. Now, you're getting two for $42, so, I mean, that's you're getting what you expect. But I just thought for once, I, I guess I was naive, I thought for once GW would be giving us a really good deal, and... I was expecting it, maybe not, maybe not dreadnought size, but larger between dreadnought size and what it is. When you assemble an Ambot, number one, it's on a 40 millimeter base. If that tells you anything, that's a Terminator base, people, and it is maybe a hair larger than a Mega Knob, and I am not kidding. It is very, very small. Now here, I thought this thing was going to be massive, and it's very small, so I'm actually going to have to kitbash this Ambot to make it a bit bigger and bulkier. I bought, uh, you know what, I'm not going to get into my project. This is not what that's about. So the Ambot's $42, and I think it's actually a, a pretty darn good deal for these two things. Um, $42, the models are not as big as you think they're going to be, and they are pretty easy to assemble, but I'm just... I, you know, I don't know, on second thought, $42 for as big as they are, you usually get like three Vargeists. I think Vargeists are about the same size as this. And Vargeists, I think, are 50 for three. So 42 for two is not quite the same value. But all in all, I think they're really well designed. I think they're really cool looking models. I was just shocked that they are so darn small. So that is what I wanted to discuss tonight. Um, and that's essentially it. I mean, they've got some really cool features to them. They've got um, two, like, winch cables up on top of them. They have these cutting saws on either side of their hands. And um, they've got a really big, beefy look. But by golly, 
it is basically a Mega Knob. So if you really want to make a really cool custom looking Mega Knob for us, and you've just got tons and tons of money to throw around, I suggest you buy a bunch of Ambots, because that's, that's essentially what you're getting. And I, I'm really, I don't want to come off as I'm being super disappointed, but I am kind of disappointed with how small they were. I would be much happier if it was $42 for one Ambot, and it was the size of a Hellbert. But what do you do? Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. In tonight's Real Talk, we want to discuss, can you actually improve the outlook of your dice rolling? The results, can you roll what you want? It's not always necessarily rolling higher, but can you roll what you want? And what do you need to know that affects your dice roll outcomes? So... I have scoured the internet to find every bit of dice rolling wisdom I can find. Some of it I may have made up. I guess you'll just have to decide. So the first nugget of information that I found was pretty interesting is that surfaces with more grip cause more bouncing, which is something I guess we could all guess. That is the reason why casino tables have very grippy surfaces in an attempt to randomize rolls. They have, you know, I think it's felt. I think it's a type of felt. And um, that is so that it actually grips. Every time it impacts on the ground, it grips and wants it to flip because of the friction. You know, the momentum and the friction. And when it's observed with a high-speed camera, dice often keep the same top-facing even during a bounce. They don't seem to tumble end over end as much as you would assume. You think when you're rolling a dice, oh, it's going to roll. They say that a lot of times, even though the full the table might be a little grippy, it's still not actually tumbling as much as you would think. So that's pretty interesting to know. Now, dice have been known to show pity on new players. It is well known that dice are often rolling higher than normal for a noob. And uh, this is because the hands of a new player are soft and plump and moisturized, and they form a pleasant cushion for the dice. After tumbling around in a new player's smooth, padded hand room, the dice appreciate the cushy tumble and return the favor. Of course, veteran gamers notoriously have hard, callous, disgusting hands, and they do that because they've got so much rolling, and eventually the dice just kind of grind away on their hands and make them really, really gross. So the best thing you could do to get better dice rolling is to please your dice and to well-moisturize your hands. I don't know if I said that right. Moisturize your hands well, I guess I should say. Now, as you may assume, slick, non-friction surfaces cause less bounce, making dice rolls only slightly more predictable, but it is more predictable. Now, there should be a caveat done with all of these, is that pretty much dice are random. But, the idea is to limit the number of random elements in it, in order to get a more averaged result. So, if you're always trying to go for sixes, you can do some of these things to try to continue getting sixes. Now, whether or not they, when you actually look at the charts of all the probability, a lot of these benefits might be 1% or something of that nature. It's, it's not huge, and I'm not a statistician. Uh, it's like the deviation of the mean or something like that. Dude, I don't know. I learned that stuff in fifth grade, okay? It's been a long time since fifth grade. Now, 
error resistance can be factored out, being that it doesn't really seem to have any effect. Unless you're planning a wind tunnel or something, the dimples on the pips don't actually appear to be deep enough to allow the air around the dice to grab it during a roll, so it doesn't really slow it down. Now, you may think that if you're really looking at a dice and it's rolling and you're zooming in really close, that all those little cups, which are the pips dug out of the dice, it would actually do something. But the results show that whether the pips are painted on or the pips are slightly carved out, it really has no effect whatsoever on the wind resistance or anything like that on your dice. Now, here's another factoid for you. Dice love the power they have over you in games. If it's a crucial two-up save and they know that this will make or break the game, they will show their true nature. Or if you're doing the, I don't even know what it's called, the emergency disembarkation roll, that you need a one, I swear to you on all that is holy that one time a dice actually winked at me in midair just before it landed on a one. And I was trying to take an objective and it just didn't work out. So I swear that is the truth. Now, they found out that the number that was on top when the dice was rolled was the most likely to end up on top when it lands. I don't know why. That's kind of strange. Nobody seems to know why this is, but it could be partially due to the way they were rolling for some reason. Um, professional rollers like for craps. The most information I was able to get online was about craps shooters uh, and the way they throw those two dice and the different techniques they use and things like that. So one thing that would be suggested is that if you want to roll sixes, you should have sixes face up in your hand when you go to roll. Because for whatever strange reason, they do tend to roll, finish their roll on the same side up that they started with. Which is just seems, that seems apocryphal, that seems like that's just complete bullshit, but actually... When they do this sort of thing for like professional craps or for dice rating or things like that, they actually do keep all these different statistics, and it's it's pretty interesting. Now, some people, you know, and maybe it's even you, notoriously roll low. I don't know why that is, but you just roll low. That is partially rectified by using a dice tower. The sort of thing that, um, you probably know what a dice tower is, but I'll explain it anyway. A proper dice tower, in theory, has three different levels of tumble in them. So it has, if you were to cut it down the middle and look at it from a cross section, the first tumble is angled, let's say, from right to left. Um, let's use clocks just for the sake of it, okay, when you're looking at it. The top one will, let's say, be pointed at 7 o'clock. Or maybe probably 8 o'clock. And then the next one will be pointed at like 3 o'clock. Um, coming from the left. And then the next one will be pointed at 7 o'clock again. And essentially the idea behind that is that when the dice roll and tumble down there, they are getting a nice mix of uh, different forces, I guess, or to be jumbled up. So instead of just rolling, if you think about it, if you're grabbing a dice and you roll it like... Uh, it's probably just spinning in one direction. But if you were to drop a dice and it's spinning, let's say, counterclockwise when it hits the first paddle, it may begin turning clockwise or vice versa, and then it hits the second paddle going in a completely different direction. It stops its momentum and trajectory and then begins tumbling the complete opposite direction until it hits the third paddle and reverses and does the same thing again. 
So there is an idea behind that that um, that actually does help it become more random because what I've learned in researching this is that everybody has their own style of dice rolling and different styles of dice rolling can actually really, really affect that. There are some people that roll from the side, like the, um, the side of your palm opposite of your thumb. That particular style has a certain name to it. And then there's other people that release the dice, and the dice roll off the tips of their fingers. Now, I've always been a, I'll call it, side roller off the side of my palm opposite of my thumb. I don't know why. I just have done that. There's also different types of people that will actually bounce the dice. So they will grab their handful of dice, and they will, like, throw them down on the table and expect them all to kind of bounce back up and then tumble. It's it's very interesting. There's another thing that the theory behind the dice castle or the dice tower is the same thing that they do in the craps table because they want you to hit that backboard of the craps table. Now, partially that is to prevent you, if you're throwing that far down the table, you've got less control over it, clearly. But also, that hitting the back table and bouncing is the same exact theory as the different paddles in a dice tower. It's expected that you you have no effect on the dice anymore. Once it leaves your hand, it's still affected by you, but you lose all control of it once it collides with something and goes in the opposite direction, making it very, very hard to have any sort of technique. And um, if your technique is generally to suck at rolling dice, then you may want to use a dice tower because... That is the craps method of doing that. Now, some people drill out dice pips and add counterweights in order to perfectly balance the center of gravity. But a study finds that the dice being perfectly balanced doesn't really matter. The top number from the starting point is always more likely to end up on top when it stops. And you will even hear of these dice that are perfectly weighted. Oh, because once again, try to visualize this in your mind. If you look at a dice... Every opposite side adds up to 7. So the 3 and the 4 are opposite sides. The 5 and the 2 and the 1 and the 6 are all opposite sides. And so you would think that the 1 having only 1 pip carved out and the 6 with 6 pips carved out being on opposite sides, you feel like it would be more inclined to roll 6s because the one side would be heavier, but statistically that really makes no no difference whatsoever. But people will, or companies will, make weighted dice in an effort to sell dice. And I, I, don't, mean, I don't mean weighted dice, like as in always rolls a six, but I mean a balanced dice is what I should say. And they will sell those, but it's kind of just a gimmick. Statistically, there's no evidence that a balanced dice rolls in any way more than you know, more balanced or more average than an unbalanced dice, which is kind of interesting. Now, practicing rolling can help you develop a form, just like in golf or shooting a basketball, and your form of rolling dice may help you narrow the probability of your rolls. Bowling would be another example. Most people think that you just throw it down the lane, you know, there's no there's no hint to it or whatever, there's no trick to it. But the professionals 
all have their own practice style and form to help them control the ball. Now that's another example actually a lot of professional bowlers have weighted balls or uh, counterweighted balls I guess I should say that their weight inside the core inside the ball is actually weighted in a certain way to counteract the way that they normally have like a curve or I don't know if they use the word English in bowling but they do that in a pool but you get the point. And they say that if you really want to get good at rolling dice, and good is such a suggestive, subjective term, but essentially average, I guess, is all you can really ask for in dice. If you can roll statistically average, you want to have a very good spin on your dice, and you want to be able to repeat the same actions. So arguably, if you had a machine that had like a little paddle on it or a little lever and you set the dice in this little socket, and it dropped at the same speed, and it dropped in the same direction every single time, you would statistically have a slightly better chance of rolling the same exact thing, because every time, it would have the same momentum, it would have the same rotation, it would hit in the same spot, and then it would react in the same spot, because all this is physics. There's no... There's no magic behind it necessarily, although I still don't understand the whole point about the number that you started with still ends up on top. I I can't begin to answer that for you, but um, it, it's pretty interesting. So if you can learn to roll dice in a certain way on a certain surface over and over and over and practice it, ideally what you would do is get a dice tray, something that is completely acceptable for you to roll in. And then use the same dice all the time so that you get a handle for how those dice feel and how they roll typically. And then you would want to practice, and this sounds so dumb, right? Because it's dice and it's supposed to be random, but you want to be able to practice your dice rolling with the same dice in the same tray. Because the surface that you bounce them off of and the texture of it matters a lot. And the dice can be different from dice to dice. That matters a lot. And your technique and how you do it the same exact way every single time matters a lot. So you're going to practice on the same surface, and hopefully that will be less chaotic in your results. Now here's one snippet that I think is kind of funny. It's kind of interesting. I've told you before, I'm sure, that I've always liked the occult. I've liked weird stuff. I've liked fringe stuff and whatnot. And I was listening to a radio show one time, and it was interviewing a wandsmith for witches. And she went into great detail about how the element that the wand is made of aligns differently with the energy of each person. Now, <laughs> don't pause it, okay? We're, this is as far as we're going into this. But it is interesting, if you want to get a bit woo-woo, as they say, you can supposedly enhance or impede your energy by using an oak wand versus a steel wand. It depends on what your energy aligns with, supposedly. I've never seen Harry Potter or read it, but I think it has something in that movie about this, about a specific wand that you have to choose or it chooses you, whatever. Some people have been known to buy a wand and claim that the energy was so adverse to them that they felt ill while holding it and had to return it for another element. So <laughs> take that with a grain of salt, which is also kind of a folklore thing. But uh, anyway, so it could just be that you know, the elements that your dice are made of don't fit with you. You could buy real bone dice. You could buy what I have, aluminum milled dice. You could buy glass dice. There's a, there's a bunch of different types of dice. So you may find that a certain element 
wooden dice would be cool. Um, the, a certain element may roll better for you. I, now, there's no science behind that, okay? Just d don't don't hate on me. But uh, I think it's interesting anyway. It's interesting that people claim this, and, you know, who knows? I mean, we're talking about probability in here stuff. Now, the best way to get the best result for your dice rolling is to roll a single dice at a time, because that will always produce the most reliable dice rolling instead of a fistful of dice. This is due to reducing the chaotic elements of the roll in the form of dice bumping up against each other in the middle of the air. It's not exactly easy to practice an average dice roll with 65 dice in your hand. It's not exactly something you can do. And you might think that extra chaos is good, but not necessarily because these dice are all moving in the same direction and it's not following the same principle as that collision and reversal technique that dice towers and craps tables want you to use. So, um, after a lot of independent research, many people have come to the conclusion that square-edged casino-style dice that you see in a lot of battle reports are more reliable and less, uh, and they roll, and they roll less than rounded-edged dice. When rolled hundreds of times versus round-edged dice, they came up exactly in the range that probability suggests they would. While round-edged dice tend to roll more ones and sixes than probable. Now that's kind of cool, ones and sixes, that's going to swing your game quite a bit, but this is partially why some tournaments require you to um, to use uh, Vegas style dice or um, casino dice, and I see a lot of battle reports, I think the Bell of Law Souls battle reports use casino dice, those big square dice. I personally like my, um, my dice to roll a lot and bounce around, so I do not like the feeling of rolling very, very square dice, square cut dice. But whatever. Now, here's another interesting tidbit. If you commonly roll badly, it is a personal commentary on you as a person. The dice are keenly aware of what you do behind closed doors, so stop whatever it is you do that makes the dice hate you. While dice may be condescending and judgmental, they have a strong moral compass. That is a fact. Now, dice that have the pips painted on are more reliable than the dice with the pips drilled out. This is why some people say casino dice are square-edged with pips painted on. It is in an attempt to have more probable rolls. This is probably due to the weight difference on each side because the pips being drilled out on the other dice spins. Now, this is interesting because this is actually contrary to another uh, study that was done that said that the wind resistance and the pips being drilled out or the pips being painted on had no effect whatsoever. So, uh, I don't know. You know what? It could just be that research on rolling dice is random. <laughs> That's not even a good joke, but whatever, okay? So, in summary, this is the best I can tell you for rolling dice more reliably. Roll one die at a time. That Now... Orc players may not like that, but if you're doing like single, if you got five saves to roll, roll them individually and make sure the six is on top before you roll it, like in your hand, make sure it's on the top and practice your rolling at home and develop a form like golfing or basketball or bowling or whatever. And you always roll on the same surface, whether you roll on your codex or you roll on your dice tray or whatever. And make sure that you roll on a surface that is slick and not hard, not bouncy or coarse. A codex is actually really good for this because it is slick and hard and it's not bouncy or coarse. 
So the idea is to not get more random rolls, but to get more reliable rolls. And things that are rougher and bouncier are going to give you more random rolls. And rolling more dice at one time gives you more random rolls, but not necessarily good. Purchase casino dice that have sharp edges and pips painted on them if you subscribe to that, but I hate the way they feel in my hand. And piss off all your opponents as you take forever rolling dice. Now, some of you may be disappointed that nobody's truly figured out how to master dice rolling, and that I can't give you a definite answer. Well, unfortunately, there is no right way to roll dice, and science hasn't spent a whole lot of time on this subject, unfortunately, much to my chagrin. This is probably because things like, I don't know, cures for diseases are more important, and, you know, other medical things, <laughs> I don't know. Science is just not that interested, okay? Sometimes science is just not that into you, basically. But if you want this changed, please join me in writing to our Congress and demanding that they direct more funding away from diseases and towards research on rolling plastic cubes. This has been my TED Talk. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you will... I mean, look, if you're this serious about rolling dice, dude, you, you have at it. Uh, hopefully this will improve your rolling, and thank you for listening. Thanks for all of my Patreon sponsors. Talk to you next week.